Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Dalhays and Dr. Daniel Kanema. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hello and welcome to today's episode. We have been promising you an episode on simulations for a while, and so here is the first of those. I spoke recently with Professor Ramil Dave from the Royal Observatory Edinburgh. I spoke to him recently at a radio astronomy conference, and uh, he was talking about um, how he uses galaxy simulations to model the ingredients of a galaxy and figure out its evolution. Um, fortunately, we have a professional uh, simulator in the room, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> you worked on this for your PhD, right? Yes, and I actually worked with uh, Ramil as uh, part of my postdoc. When he was here in Cape Town, I, I was working for him. Okay, so Dan, just quickly, what is a simulation? So basically, when we observe galaxies, we look out into the night sky and we look at the how a galaxy is uh, presenting or how we observe it. We can see the stars, we can see the gas, we can see how it's kind of arranged. But the problem we have as observers is that we only get one snapshot of a galaxy. We don't get to see a galaxy evolve across our lifetime. Galaxies evolve over millions and billions of years, and it's a very, very slow process. We don't get to watch an individual galaxy and how it's changed. So what we'd like to do with simulations is take our understanding of physics, primarily uh, gravity, but also additional physics involving the gas and how stars form, incorporate all of that into a model which predicts how a galaxy is going to form and evolve. So we have individual uh, gas, star, dark matter particles. We let them interact uh, in a computer uh, under the laws of physics, uh, and we step them through time over and over again, uh, millions of time steps, and see how uh, the galaxy forms and in the first place and then evolves over time. Cool. So I think uh, let's just hear from Ramil. With us here today is Ramil Dave. Hello, Ramil. Hi there. Uh, what are you here in, in South Africa for? So I'm here for the, the Sarau Bursary Meeting. So that's the South African Radio Astronomical Observatory's annual meeting, uh, which brings together everyone in South Africa. There's about 250 to something like 300 people here uh, who work on radio astronomy related to uh, something many of you have probably heard of, the Square Kilometer Array Project. Um, I'm one of the organizers of the committee, and uh, I've come down every year basically since I've come to South Africa. And you uh, are not currently based in South Africa. You're based in Scotland at the moment. That's right. So I'm at the Royal Observatory Edinburgh. Uh, so that's uh, at, on the, at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm, a, uh, I'm the chair of physics there. But you did previously live in South Africa and work here. Yeah, it was awesome, too. So um, I lived almost five years in Cape Town, and uh, I was a... I was a I had a research chair here as well uh, through the South African Research Chair Initiative, and uh, th those are five year positions which uh, try to attract top people from around the world to 
boost South African research at the very highest levels. So uh, my position was split between the University of Western Cape, where I was mostly based, the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the uh, African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, which is this cute little uh, institute down in Musenberg, right near Surfer's Corner, really awesome um, place to work. And from all those, uh, and I was basically splitting time between those three institutes for almost five years. And did you enjoy your time here? I loved it. I loved living in Cape Town. I loved South Africa. It was it was great. Um, working wise, there were some uh, some unique challenges. I think um, to uh, you know, this is obviously a place that has uh, not had the research tradition of say the United States or or uh, or Europe or you know Australia, but. Nonetheless, I think uh, there's a lot of energy here and there was a lot of excitement. And uh, so it was, it was really great to be part of that. So, you know, like I, like I tell a lot of people, you know, the, the trend was very positive. Uh, the sort of the overall level was still kind of low. So that was part of my job to, to help that out. And I certainly tried to do some stuff on that. I think you're quite successful. We've got an amazing scientific uh, astronomy atmosphere here now. Yeah, certainly wasn't all me, but but I, I hopefully did did my part. Um, so you know, uh, I think the University of Western Cape was a particularly interesting uh, place to be a part of because, uh, of course, it's a former colored teaching college, and they don't still to this day, like many of the formerly disadvantaged institutes, don't have a real strong research tradition just yet. But we had a rather visionary um, DVC research named Ramesh Baruthram, and he uh, decided that because of the investment with the square kilometer array, that astronomy should be a major thing that UWC should invest in. And he was able to attract the person who was the head of the uh, very successful institute in the UK at Portsmouth named Roy Martins. And Roy is a South African who had been working in the UK for about 20 years and uh, was quite a, a important person in cosmology. And he attracted Roy down to come down with one of these chair positions. And with that, uh, that was the sort of the seed that grew UWC into quite a successful organization. Then I came, we hired a couple of more faculty, people have come and left. But ultimately, uh, in about the span of five years from when I got there to when I left, we went from essentially something like three faculty to about six faculty. And we were also the uh, top rated physical sciences institute by the Nature Index in Africa. So that was uh, quite a quite a nice uh, boost for UWC, and um, and you know we were a small group, but we had a large number of postdocs. We had something like fifteen postdocs, something like twenty students. That's grown since then, so it's uh, it's become a really exciting and active uh, research environment. And to this day, I try to stay involved with it. Well, congratulations to you and everyone else at UWC for that great achievement. We've seen some wonderful talks by UWC students and postdocs at this conference so far. Are you still involved with, uh, with supervising them? Yeah, so I still have uh, two students here. I had a third student who just graduated, in fact, got a rather prestigious postdoctoral position. Uh, got a Tombaugh Fellowship at New Mexico State University to work with someone who who's quite uh, famous in his field. So, uh, so yeah, he, he Sultan did, uh, that was Sultan Hassan, who was originally from Sudan, uh, but, uh, but became a South African resident while he was here. Uh, just about graduated another fellow named Mika Rafi Ferranzo, who's uh, from Madagascar originally, but also now a South African resident. And, um, 
And he's, you know, going to be applying for jobs, but I think overall he should do pretty well. And I also have a third student who's kind of more just starting out, uh, Nicole Thomas, who's a, who's a South African, uh, born and raised. And so she, um, you know, I think she's going to be, she's, she's fantastic. And so, you know, I'm really excited to, to keep involved with, uh, with South Africa through her and, and through the rest of the UWC community. I should also mention I have, a couple of postdocs as well. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's, there's uh, Margarita Molaro, who I hired shortly before I left. <laughs> so I say, Hey, Margarita, come on down. And then I immediately left. Um, but she's super great. And so she's super independent. And uh, we just hired another postdoc in preparation for all these large survey projects that are going to be coming up with with meerkat uh, several of which I'm involved with. Tell us more about meerkat. Right. So uh, meerkat is the is a precursor to the square kilometer array that's being built in the Karoo. And it's uh, it's basically the world's best radio telescope. And it's essentially close to 100% South African designed, constructed, uh, procured, and um, worked on. Uh, so it's really a, a fantastic project that has elevated South Africa's standing in the global community, particularly in radio astronomy, which is the, the focus of Meerkat as a radio telescope, to levels that, that you know, were just unimaginable 10 or 15 years ago. So it's, it's really been a huge boon to South Africa. And what kind of research are you and your research team working on with, with Meerkat? Right. So our research team is focused on understanding what the observations are going to tell us about the physics of galaxies. So one of the big questions is, how did our Milky Way form, right? It's, it's, if you think about it, it's, it's a part of our, our origin story, right? It's, it's essentially tracing back from what we were, you know, many thousands of years ago, you can go thousands of years ago, we were, you know, less, you know, had less advanced civilizations than, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, we were living in caves or whatever. And then millions of years ago, we were, we were, you know, uh, apes or whatever. And if we start coming back further and further, um, we can get to the earth, the formation of the earth, the formation of the sun. That was about four and a half billion years ago. But we're in fact part of a galaxy, the Milky Way, right? And that Milky Way galaxy formed uh, even further back, something like maybe 12 billion years ago, and even further back from that was the origin of the universe, the Big Bang. So we actually have a remarkably good story for how we've gotten, how life was formed on Earth. Uh, we just heard a great talk about that from um, from some people looking for extraterrestrial life using Meerkat, or will be doing that. And the question then, because, you know, how do we get from the formation of the Earth all the way back to the Big Bang, right? How do we put that entire story together? And that's basically what I'd like to do, right? This is what we try to do using big supercomputers, because it's very hard to, to you know, think and just write down all the things that might happen. So instead, we try to put it on a computer and let the computer do the thinking for us. So essentially, what we try to do is start 
very close to the Big Bang, put in the laws of physics as we understand them into a computer and evolve a model of the universe forward and try to see if we can produce things that look like the Milky Way and all the other galaxies that we see around us, which many of them you know, look very different than the Milky Way. And the question then becomes, you know, why are all these galaxies different? What made one galaxy look all blobby and red and the other one look all beautiful, spirally and blue? And, and you know, one has this weird feature in the bar in the middle and one has a black hole that seems to be shining. Where did all this come from, right? And that's really what we're trying to understand in a very holistic sense, starting at the Big Bang, all the way until until today. Um, and the radio observations in particular are really a new window on this. It's something that that has been, you know, we we you've probably all seen pictures of galaxies or, you know, something like a, an image of a bunch of little you know spirals and things like that. And that's all great, of course, uh, but that typically comes from optical telescopes, light seen in the visible regime. So instead, uh, with the radio telescope, we can see totally different things, right? It's like, it's like, you know, it's, you, if you've ever worn sort of night vision goggles or seen night vision goggles, you can see in the dark all of a sudden because you're seeing in a different type of light. Well, if the radio is a completely different type of light than visible. So we see different things. And because we can now see different things, we can particularly uh, learn many new things that we were just never able to access before. And so that's the promise, I think, of Meerkat and eventually the Square Kilometer Array is we're opening up this new way of looking at the universe. And my goal is to try to take our simulations and try to see whether or not we can understand what this new information is telling us about this origin story, about how galaxies form, how the Milky Way formed, eventually how stars formed and how planets formed. So you're trying to simulate galaxies in a simulated universe and compare to what we're really going to see in real observations with the Meerkat telescope. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's basically the sum of it. And, and the idea is, of course, we can think of these computer simulations as uh, as numerical experiments. So what one of the problems we have in astronomy is that typically the way you think of doing science is you have someone, you know, old fuddy-duddy guy in a lab coat, usually a guy, unfortunately, and, and they basically sit around and construct some experiment and they conduct the experiment and they get some answer out of the experiment. So, and that's great. And that's supposed to be science, right? So that's how science works. But in astronomy, we have a problem because we have no control over our experiment. Our experiment is millions of light years away and we can't even get there, let alone control anything about it. So how do we do this, right? How do we conduct experiments? Well, one of the ways you can do that is do those experiments in a computer. And the way that works is you say, okay, um, I don't know exactly how this works, but I can try a whole bunch of different things that I think might be going on and I can run a whole bunch of different simulations. And with those different simulations, I can then look at what comes out of those simulations and I can compare it to the observations from things like Hubble Space Telescope or, or Meerkat and figure out which of these actually looks most like the real universe. And whichever one looks most like the real universe, well, you know, that's probably closer to the right answer and it may not be exactly the right answer, but, but, you know, hopefully we sort of bumble our way closer towards understanding what exactly is the, the physics we need to produce the things that we see. So what kind of things do you put into your simulation? What ingredients go into this? Yeah, there's a lot. So first of all, the thing that goes into this is the things that make up our universe. And that's already a pretty remarkable thing. So um, we put in the sort of atomic elements that we have in the periodic table, 
but that actually only makes up about 5% of what's in the total universe. So we have to put in the other stuff too. And about 25% of what makes up the stuff in the universe is the stuff called dark matter, which we don't fully understand what it is, but we have um, very good constraints on it from, from a number of different properties. So, um, you know, people often say dark matter is this big mysterious thing. In fact, it's not that mysterious. We know exactly the properties it has to have. And the real difficulty with the real reason it's been so difficult to find dark matter is not that we don't have plenty of dark matter candidates, it's that they don't have all the properties that we think that, that dark matter must have in order to produce things like galaxies that we see. So, so we, we know that even though we don't know what it is, we know its properties exceedingly well. And so we put those properties into the simulation, right? And uh, the main property that it has is it interacts gravitationally, but it doesn't interact with light. All right. So, uh, so that's okay. So now we're up to 30%. And then there's the other 70%. And that's this even weirder stuff called dark energy, which uh, no one really thought was, uh, everyone thought was a crazy idea about 30 years ago, but, um, in the last 20 years, it's basically become uh, de facto the assumption of what's going on. And the, the reason that dark energy was postulated was to explain the fact that the expansion rate of the universe is accelerating. And that's not something you expect. If you think of an explosion, what typically happens on the, happens on the outskirts of an explosion is that it slows down, right? And that's what everybody expected to see that as, you know, you look further and further away that, that the, the galaxies are going to be moving slower and slower away from us. Uh, that's not what we saw, right? That's not what astronomers saw in the, in the mid nineties. And, uh, that resulted in a Nobel prize and the discovery, uh, or, really more more appropriately the confirmation of dark energy and um so it makes up the 70 percent of the mass energy in the universe and we have to put that include that in our models as well so once we put all this stuff into our models now we have the stuff now we need the physics to understand what it's all going to do and the kind of physics we have to put in is things like gravity of course um some general relativity that goes into that there's also a lot of hydrodynamics so so we have to have the fact that the gas is, has a temperature and it heats up and it cools down and, and then we have to put in some radiation stuff. So when a gas cools down, it typically emits light, emits photons, and those are, that's what we actually see in our telescopes, right? So that's how we get from the simulation, what we simulated, down to what we can actually observe. Right. And so that's, that's sort of the process. Uh, and then we have to put in all kinds of stuff about how we think stars form and how we think black holes form and all these kinds of, uh, uh, very complicated things that people actually don't fully understand at this point. And that's one of the goals is to use these simulations to test the various models for how stars like the sun might form. And, you know, and from that decide which is the best, you know, best current model that we have. There's so many different ingredients in there. I bet there's there's many different recipes you can uh, create from from all of these. So, what have you found? What are, what are your best results so far? Best results. Woo. Um, so, I think what the 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 way this process has gone, right? Um, so, I've been working on simulations for about. 20 years now, 20, 25 years now. And I'll tell you out, you know, when, when we started out, we couldn't get anything that looked anything like a Milky Way. I mean, it was just like, 
you know, and people looked at us doing simulations and they patted our head and go, oh, isn't that cute? You playing with computers. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> right. Uh, knowing that we couldn't get anything that looked anything like the real universe. And so that was a little disheartening. But eventually, you know, we, we kept at it. We started, you know, realizing that, oh, wait, you know, one of the one of the big ingredients that we were missing in that first generation of simulations. You know, I, had, I helped write essentially the world's first um, galaxy formation code that was able to utilize parallel supercomputers that are very common today that everyone runs on. Um, and, you know, when we started first writing these codes, we we kind of just put in the simplest things that we knew how, but that didn't result in anything that looked like galaxies. So then we, have, we started to think, okay, what are we missing? And one of the things that we came to realize that turned out to be incredibly important is the fact that galaxies, you would think of these galaxies, if you look at this beautiful spiral galaxy out there, you think it's this nice, serene, beautiful object just standing there. In fact, it's not. In fact, it is a, a roiling pot of energy that's bubbling and spewing out all this material all over space uh, due to these explosive supernovae and the black hole that's growing in the center of it. And there's all this, this craziness that's going on that you just can't see when you just because when you take an image, all you see are the stars. But the stars are such a small fraction of what's going on in that galaxy. Most of the mass in the galaxy is not in stars. And, um, you know, it's in that gas and dark matter and all these other things. And uh, so when you have a simulation that includes all these other components, you start to immediately realize that, my goodness, um, you know, the stars are really kind of the frosting on the cake. I mean, it's what you happen to see because they shine. But in fact, there's so much else going on. And particularly these energetic processes result in... Um, a, a kind of, um, uh, if you want to think about it, I like to think about it as a cosmic ecosystem. So a galaxy, uh, just like, you know, a, a biological ecosystem has uh, something that grows inside of it that results in, uh, you know, a, an interaction with the environment. And that interaction with the environment then helps decide how you grow. Right. And that's, that's how, that's how basically animals work or plants work or things like that. That's basically also how galaxies work. So galaxies are born. They have these uh, interactions within this cosmic ecosystem from which they are able to draw in material, their food essentially to grow. Uh, they need food. So they are able to, because of their gravity, they're able to pull in material that allows them to form some stars and stuff. But during that star formation process, some of those stars go supernovae. Some of that material goes into the black hole. You get this energetic release that throws material back out into the environment and you get the cycle of material in and out of galaxies. And a bit of a side note, every 10 years, um, the, the astronomical community in the United States and in a, in actually also in Europe goes through a decadal process. And where we decide what is our main goals for the entire field of astronomy over the next 10 years. And I was on the decadal team and I was responsible, myself and, and two other people were responsible for writing this galaxies part of what, what we need to do. This, this, um, we were on the galaxies across cosmic time panel and we came up with a phrase. And uh, between myself and Andrew Baker, we came up with a phrase called the baryon cycle. Okay. And the baryons, what baryons are essentially things in, are things like in the periodic table. Okay. So the bar the idea of a baryon cycle is that there's this constant exchange of material between galaxies 
and their surrounding environment that creates this ecosystem. And it's this process that essentially determines what the properties of galaxies are, why one galaxy looks one way, why another galaxy looks another way. Right. And it's all these differences, kind of a a combination, again, of nature and nurture, you know, kind of the same things we think of as with with humans or plants or whatever uh, are are just as um, relevant for galaxies. So I think, you know, one of the things that we've done with we've seen with these simulations is the importance of this baryon cycle, because in the simulations, we can see the gas and we can see the dark matter. We can see the effects of all these explosive stuff. And when that happens, we can see how important it is in the simulations, even though you wouldn't necessarily easily see it when you just look at an image of a galaxy. And because of this, what we've been able to do is say that, ah, well, okay, this stuff might be difficult to observe, but you can observe it. All you have to do is maybe look in other wavelengths, right? You can't necessarily look at it in the optical because there you'll just see the stars, but there are other wavelengths where you can trace the gas. And this is where something like the radio comes in, right? Because in the radio, you can particularly trace neutral hydrogen gas relatively easily. And by being able to trace that neutral hydrogen and look at what that neutral hydrogen is doing, suddenly it's a whole new way of looking at this galaxy and because hydrogen is the most common element in the universe, it's a way to really um, probe this baryon cycle of where this, this, these elements are going in and out. So you're essentially growing these cosmic ecosystems inside supercomputers. Can you tell us a bit more about the computers and the infrastructure you, you use to do this? Right. So we uh, typically run on these massive parallel supercomputers. So when I was in Cape Town, we actually had one built <laughs> for us because there wasn't really that much facilities. There was some facilities, national facilities, but they were um, not that well suited for what we needed to do. So UWC was very nice to me. Um, they spent about 3 million rands and, and built us a supercomputer, which is still operating today, five years later. So that's where we did some of our initial calculations while we're here. Nonetheless, uh, 3 million rands might sound like a lot of money, but it's actually not for for a supercomputer. And uh, we have much bigger computers around the world. And for instance, in Edinburgh, we have... So the one in, in Cape Town had about a thousand cores. Uh, the one in Edinburgh that I'm reusing now has about a hundred thousand cores. And uh, so it's about a hundred times bigger. And with that, of course, we're able to do much bigger calculations. So essentially, you can think of these as um, as essentially personal computers all stacked into a rack and connected together, right? And you can write special purpose programs that allow you to join up and link up all these separate machines and to act like one machine. And this is known as parallel supercomputing, right? And you have to sort of write code. You you can't just take off the shelf code. You have to sort of design your code specially to do this. Uh, So that's what we've done. And that's the legacy that we've built, you know, what I started doing 20 years ago, and we're still sort of building on that. And we essentially are able to use these supercomputers to run larger and larger simulations, basically as computers get faster and faster. Does cloud computing have any role to play in these, this sort of work? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things about uh, the, the computing is you want to run the simulation. When you run the simulation, cloud computing isn't so useful just because the, the requ- it, it's required that you have a very tight connection between all the various nodes and, and 
certainly there are ways to optimize that in a way that that it, it's, it's just becomes much more cost effective essentially to build your own. However, that's sort of only step one of the process, right? Step two of the process is then you have to take the simulation outputs and you have to say, okay, now what would I see if I were to observe this with Meerkat or, or some telescope, right? And that's a whole separate process that needs a whole separate set of routines, which we've also done. And uh, that can be run much more sort of distributed. And, um, and particularly what we'd like to have, right, is have the data products be available for other people to use. Right. We want to try to disseminate our, our simulation results and allow people to look at whatever they happen to be interested in that, that our simulation might look at. So here in South Africa, we're working with the Inter-University Institute for Data Intensive Astronomy, uh, otherwise known as IDEA, to host our simulation outputs as well as all the resulting catalogs and things so that on computers here in Cape Town and and not only will it, will it be the simulations, but really that that portal is, be, is supposed to be hosting the data from Meerkat and eventually the SKA. So we'll have this system now where you can go to this uh, portal, this IDEA portal, which is called Cyber SKA. And on Cyber SKA, you can say, okay, I'm interested in this type of an object. I'm interested in galaxy clusters. Okay, give me, give me radio data on galaxy clusters. Oh, while you're at it, why don't you also give me the simulation data on galaxy clusters? And now I can see whether or not the simulation data uh, looks like the real data. And I can try to learn something more about the data because the simulations contain way more information than you can get just out of the radio observations. So by putting these two things together in a very close-knit environment, I think we have an opportunity to really advance, be able to advance pro uh, progress in the field a lot faster. And so that's that's very exciting opportunity for me. So I've been working with the head of IDEA, uh, Russ Taylor, to, uh, to actually implement this. And with all of the amazing resources being developed for astronomy in South Africa and for the world, can this actually be applied to different fields? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so a lot of the computational techniques that, that uh, we're developing uh, are essentially like big data techniques. And if you know anything about the world today, big data is a big thing. So I know bioinformatics is doing a lot of work on big data, but essentially with big data, the idea of big data is the following, that we have a huge amount of information and how do we distill that information into things that allow us to access the information we want, right? And we have kind of that problem, exact that exact problem in the simulations, because we're in principle simulating everything. We're simulating just a random big patch of the universe. And it's a, it has galaxies, has clusters, has gas, it has dark matter, it has all this stuff in it. And the question then becomes, it becomes a real challenge to figure out, okay, you know, this is what I'm actually interested in. How do I extract that information out of this, all this mess, right? And um, so, you know, those kind of techniques that, that basically allow us to distill that information, use statistical techniques, advanced statistical techniques like machine learning to allow us to predict things uh, better, to join up different uh, types of simulations, to connect that back to the data, so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, I have to say that, you know, when I was quote unquote growing up in astronomy, 
I was I was at the University of California Santa Cruz, and uh, Silicon Valley was right across the hill. And you know we lost half our group to Silicon Valley, right? Because they were all this exciting stuff was going on. There was a big tech boom, all that sort. These days, it's not Silicon Valley anymore. It's data science. So I've had essentially half of my graduating well students and postdocs eventually ended up in data science they all sort of go on to astronomy after they finish with me but then you know end up leaving um well half of them a lot of them are are like faculty and stuff but uh the point is that that you know the the techniques and the skills that they're learning in astronomy are actually applicable to a wide range of problems and uh, they're very well they're very sought after uh, so I'm, you know, writing a lot of, I, I get emails from these data science programs that want to recruit, uh, young PhD astronomers because these people know how to solve problems. They know how to work with computers. They know how to work with big data and they know the techniques already. And it's an extremely marketable skill. So I think it's, you know, I think it's great. I mean, a lot of people are like, Oh no, they left astronomy. Uh, no, I think it's fantastic, right? We're, we're taking these people, training them with these skills that they wouldn't have been able to. Sure. It happened to be about astronomy, but it could have been about anything. The point is they got those skills and now they can apply them to, you know, whatever the Google or, 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 you know, I have one, one, one of my former students working at Google. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I think it's, it's a great training for, for a wide variety of different uh, applications in the business world in addition to science. Yeah, I guess the astronomy does equip you with a lot of interdisciplinary skills that you can apply in a, in a wide range of different jobs, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly related to computing. Uh, so obviously, the stuff we do is very related to computing. But essentially, any astronomer, you know, this people may not realize this, but if you're an astronomer, you spent 80 or 90% of your day sitting in front of a computer screen, right? You are programming, you are using code, you are developing code, you are using programs. That's how you analyze the data. It's all done on computer. Everything is on computer. So you have to be very computer proficient. You have to be able to design algorithms, write codes, uh, create different ways of doing things that are more clever, faster, better, whatever, right? Uh, this is your job. And in fact, when you put it that way, you realize that that's not a skill that's limited to astronomy, right? That's basically what you do for, for any kind of innovation related to computing. And because, of course, computing is such an integral part of everything that we do now, uh, that skills are extremely transferable, absolutely. And I think uh, things are only going to get bigger and better with the upcoming SKA. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so that's that's something we're we're really looking forward to. Um, I mean, Meerkat just started running basically this this past summer, so we got an amazing first light image of the galactic center. If you want to, want to, uh, which there's by the way about a four million. Uh, solar mass black hole. So a black hole is about 4 million times the size of the sun sitting there lurking in there and it's doing all kinds of crazy things. We can't see the black hole. It's black, but we can see the stuff that it's doing to the stuff around it. And it's pretty incredible. So, you know, that was, that was really mind blowing. And I think that uh, we're, we've, we've seen at this conference here, we've already seen some, some of the first results from looking at uh, just blank patches of sky and seeing so many more things than we've ever seen before in that region of space in the radio. And that's, that's really spectacular, really stunning. So, so, you know, we're very excited about Meerkat. It's going to operate for about five years, uh, about two or three years from now, the plan is to start really ramping up building with the SKA one 
array, which is going to be about three times the size of, of Meerkat. So it's effectively going to be an extension to Meerkat. So in particular, it's not just going to be more dishes, but the dishes are going to be much more spread out, right? And if you think about it, when, when you spread the dishes out further, right, you will allows you to resolve the distant objects better and better. It's like, you know, having this one, the reason why we have two eyes, right? Because we can then judge distance. And the farther apart our eyes are, the better you can judge distance. So the farther apart you put these telescope antennae, uh, then, then the better you can resolve the small, tiny things far, far away. So there's going to be uh, outrigger stations in the SK, in uh, Botswana, in all the way as far as Madagascar. They're still thinking about even farther afield than that. So it's really going to be an African project, not just a, a South African project once we get to that SKA phase. So uh, that's going to be very exciting because that'll allow us not only to see, you know, very, very far, but also be able to make out into tiny features that, that even Meerkat can't really do that well and be able to particularly match the kind of resolution that we can get with the optical telescopes. And that, that I think is just uh, kind of almost unprecedented over the kind of uh, areas that we'll be able to do this with, with the SKA. So very, very exciting times. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully this will all go relatively smoothly. I think there's a lot of hurdles to overcome, but, uh, but it's great to see that Meerkat is working. It's up and running. It's delivering uh, better, I think, exceeding expectations, if anything, which is just uh, kind of <laughs> a rare thing these days that something comes in on budget exceeding specs, you know, but that's what Meerkat did. So I think the South Africans have just done an absolutely amazing job with Meerkat. Really, they should be extremely proud. And, um, and you know, I think the, the, the payoff is now. We're just starting to see it now. So it's very exciting times. Of course, the, the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, is going to be a, an international instrument, but it, it will be based here. A lot of it will be based here in South Africa, won't it? How do you envisage the future of astronomy in South Africa, given your experience in, in at least three different continents, working on three different continents? You know, as I said, I think South Africa does not have the tradition of science education that some of these other countries have. And there's some unique challenges in South Africa, uh, particularly related to transforming uh, the the cohort of astronomers into people that are more representative of the overall population, which is, of course, primarily black. And so that is was a big focus while we while I was in South Africa. I mean, it continues to be a big focus, but uh, for for the people here and something that I'm I'm certainly it was one of the reasons that actually kind of attracted me to South Africa in the end, because I think, you know, this is an important endeavor. If we can bring in people um, from all backgrounds and um, make them successful in astronomy and part of the international community, that's a huge boon and just for the profile of, of Africa in general, but particularly South Africa, right? And I think that's a, that's a very exciting possibility. I think the government is is 100% committed to this. And the hope is that, you know, in 15, 20, you know, however long years, 30 years, that we will see 
uh, South Africans from all walks, from all colors, all um, walks of life, be part of the SKA and be something that it's in the community that people realize, oh, yeah, you know, if you work for the SKA, it's kind of like working for the, for NASA in the U.S. You know, you go around in the U.S., you say, well, I work for NASA. You know, my wife worked for NASA. I, you know, I've done a lot of work with NASA. Um, you know, everybody's, ooh, NASA, you know, ooh, you know, <laughs> have you been to Area 51, you know, <laughs> see any aliens, you know. So, so, I mean, that's that's all well and good. But, you know, I think that having having that sort of, you know, profile in the community and saying that that's really cool stuff. This is stuff that that really is something we're proud of. We're proud to do. We're proud to be part of. Um, that's, I think, invaluable. And, and so it's it's a long ways from here to there. Uh, but I mean, you've made so much progress over the last 10 years with with the Meerkat and now, you know, being part of the SKA. They had to win the bid for the SKA uh, when they started out. It was uh, they were let me, not, charitably. They were long shots. Right. And uh, to, to actually be able to secure the Meerkat telescope and to be able to uh, build it and have it be successful and, and do all these things has been remarkable. So it's going to take a little bit of effort to catch up, I think, and uh, to also bring up the, the education at the college level, even the high school level to be able to get the people who are sufficiently trained to uh, be able to step in and, and do uh, the kind of work that we need. But we, again, you know, there's, there's lots of efforts towards that. There's strong amount of funding. Uh, there, it's a huge priority, both with the, the SKA community here in South Africa, as well as with the universities. So it's certainly something that's, that's on everybody's mind. And, and it's certainly something that we've seen a lot of progress for. Uh, but we hope that, you know, eventually, uh, this, this is going to be, this is going to be the standing of South Africa in the international community. It's going to be on this, on par with, you know, all these other, well, what, you know, what we would call more scientifically developed nations. Incredibly exciting times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for talking to us, Ramil. All right. Thank you, Jacinta. Thank you, Jacinta. Uh, <laughs> great interview. And um, Ramil does a very good job of, of explaining simulations. And He did a great um, job, didn't he? He really did. Yeah. Um, he's very, very good at his job and then obviously very good in explaining it. He's clearly done this before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting field. And I spent a lot of time with my PhD and subsequent postdocs doing exactly that work, uh, working with supercomputers, uh, both at the Center for High Performance Computing here in Cape Town, uh, and then also the the machine that Ramil helped set up at UWC. Oh, right. You actually used that machine. Yeah. It was called Pumba. Pumba. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We had a lot of Lion King themed uh, names. Yeah. I think his simulation is called Mufasa. Yeah. The simulation is <laughs> called Mufasa. And then the, the subsequent, like, child simulations were obviously called Simba. Uh, we also had a Timon cluster, which was a kind of smaller cluster, which, which was used for analysis and <laughs> I sense a theme here. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of which, I'm really looking forward to the next Lion King movie coming out. Yes, I think we all are. <laughs> <laughs> so were you working on uh, similar topics to what Ramil was discussing, uh, using the simulations to study galaxy evolution? Yeah, so I, I worked on a range of topics, but uh, in general, I was doing very similar stuff. So using hydrodynamical simulations to look at how galaxies are forming and evolving, uh, and then how we can uh, observe those 
those differences in in observations uh, and what we can learn about our simulations from that. So, so when you say hydrodynamical simulations, what exactly does that mean? So a hydrodynamical simulation is basically a simulation which is not only including gravity. So we're in, we have particles, dark matter particles. These are simulated particles, dark matter particles, as well as gas and stars, which form a galaxy in a, in a simulation sense. And instead of just using gravity to work out how they interact, you include some fluid mechanical forces. So gases have pressure and temperature and they interact differently to to just uh, gravitational particles. So including that sort of physics in a simulation greatly changes uh, how the galaxy evolves and we can learn a lot more about how they're evolving in, in the real world. In the real universe, in the I real, guess. In the, <laughs> in the real universe. So I guess... So we have only one universe, right? And that's the only one that we can see. And I guess if we want to study physics, we we want to reproduce other universes and, and see what, what it would do if we change the physics. Is that why we do simulations? It's not so much a curiosity in terms of creating other universes. It's more a sort of we have one shot at looking at our universe. So we can see it as it is now, looking at the nearby universe. And then as we look at further and further galaxies, uh, we look further back in time and we get a picture of the universe as it was at different stages, uh, right back to the very early universe. And having all of those puzzle pieces, we can kind of paint a picture of how the universe has evolved uh, over the last 14 billion years. But linking that together with some real physics is complicated. So we would like to understand from a physical point of view, uh, what are the laws of physics which are governing these processes? We know that gravity has a, has a major role, um, but then there's a lot more physics to it, such as the hydrodynamics I was talking about. And then a lot of, a lot of other uh, processes which, which go into galaxies and galaxy formation. So what we're doing as simulators is we're taking, uh, the picture of the very early universe and then Using our theories and uh, physical uh, laws, we evolve that early galaxy in a, in a supercomputer to see what it would look like today and then compare that to the observations. And from that, we can learn whether our laws are correct or not and, and where they need tweaking and sort of what physics we're, we're missing. Like maybe we need to include some um, physics from supernova or physics from black holes or there, there's something missing which means that the galaxies we form in a simulation don't necessarily look like the galaxies we form we we see uh, and and that's kind of more what the what the approach is so it's more about figuring out whether we've got the physics right whether we've understood the physical processes correctly and therefore whether we can reproduce the the universe as we know it yeah it's it's all well and good just collecting sort of images and observations of the universe, but unless we understand the physics behind it, it's kind of futile. And obviously to to understand the physics behind it, we need to we need to try and put piece all those those pieces together uh, and sort of have a coherent thread of, of physics. Right. So it's only through 
comparing my observations, our observations with radio telescopes, with optical telescopes, with all of the different types of telescopes, uh, to your simulations of the universe with our current knowledge of physics, our best guess, and comparing the two, that's how we do astrophysics. That's how we figure out whether we understand the universe. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you need both fields and they need to work very, very closely together to talk about where the, where the challenges lie and what the problems are and, and where are the things we don't understand. If we make an observation of something which doesn't make any physical sense, then you go and speak to a simulator and see whether he can try and create that in a, in a supercomputer and say, like, is, is this physically possible or are we seeing something which is not predicted? Yeah, and I guess, as as Ramil said, there's still a lot of questions, isn't there? We haven't solved ev- everything. We don't understand the entire universe yet. No, we don't. <laughs> Especially dark matter, dark energy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, again, as Ramil said, we have a very good understanding of dark matter, actually. Um, uh, dark energy, uh, to a large extent, too. Uh, we just haven't directly observed the, the particle responsible for dark matter. But in terms of the physical understanding of dark matter, it's actually uh, it's remarkably well-constrained. Uh, but no, I mean, there, there's still plenty of questions that remain <laughs> beyond those two. Uh, and, and yeah, lots, lots of exciting stuff to come. Can't wait. <laughs> and a lot of it will come from here, I hope. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, that was pretty cool for our first episode of on simulations, and uh, I'm sure we'll have more for you if Dan has anything to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, We have two small favours to ask you. If you are enjoying this podcast, um, it would be really awesome if you could tell a friend or two who might be interested. And if you have any feedback at all for us, whether you have any suggestions, questions, or there's something in particular that you're enjoying, uh, we'd really, really love to hear from you. So you can contact us on our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where there's a link to contact us. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook at Cosmic Savannah. And Savannah is spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. And that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. Special thanks today to Professor Ramil Devey for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Allnut for music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, Michal Wercek for photography and technical assistance, and Sebastian tulinski obrochki for help in post-production. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah. Thank you, Jacinta. Uh, great interview. And um, Ramil does a, a very, very good... Di- what? Why no, I'm agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you're like, what the fuck is he saying? <laughs>